Thank you all for so many of you that came out to Rise and Shine um, yesterday morning and, and uh, just jumped into the Pearl District and, and uh, began to make a statement there. We had several neighbors and business owners that were just scratching their heads going, what are you all doing here? And why are you cleaning these, this place up? And, and uh, we just wanted to surprise them a little bit and tell them that we care and that we somebody's thinking about them. And so thank you for that. We also want to celebrate today our... Our missions, our medical missions team from Guatemala is back. Uh, Dr. Vu led 23 uh, to Guatemala, and uh, they saw 1,103 patients um, in five clinical days. Uh, One of those days was to a group of people that were living in a cemetery next to a garbage dump is where they lived. Um, And the thing that you all did, other than praying and encouraging them and supporting them. You gave an offering several months ago. Remember our drug offering, our, our pill party? Um, you gave money for medications, and they passed out 3,000 packets of medication um, to, to people with different illnesses and different things. A lot of these people have never don't even know what an aspirin is. They don't know what Tylenol is. And so, so um, I know Dr. Vu had one setting where he prayed for a gentleman who was an alcoholic who came to faith and they just so many good stories and so again thank you um we're celebrating together what uh what we can do as a body when we we pull our resources together so awesome awesome good for you um every time that we share with you every time when we get together in one of these gatherings we talk from the scripture um, the bible is a really critical part of our christian journey But we want to suggest this morning that how we read the Bible, if we're not careful, can actually harm our view of the nature of God. I was visiting with a young man in his 20s this last year, and he was dealing with a very desperate issue in his life, had been for 10 years. He was only in his 20s, so this is something that happened from uh, teenage years. And because of the way that his pastor and his church his parents and his friends read the Bible, certain parts of the Bible, he was absolutely convinced, number one, that God hated him, that God had already condemned him to hell, that if he were to tell his parents or his friends about what he'd been struggling with, then they would also do the same because that's what they had said about people that struggled with this. And he was in such a desperate place that he made a very significant attempt at suicide. Um, Fortunately, it didn't go through, it didn't work. And he has now come to be able to to see another part of the story, see a, a, a bigger part of the nature of God than he had ever seen before. But he was absolutely trapped because the way that he read the Bible and because the way that those around him read the scripture. I've been raised in the church all my life, very, very thankful for... uh, being, being um, in that upbringing, that, that rhythm of faith in my family lineage. Yes, I remember flannel graphs in children's church and all the stories. I remember as a nine-year-old tiptoeing out in the baptistry where the water was about up to here on me and, and peering out at the, the audience. And, and I remember experiences in youth groups and wonderful things that, that I'm so thankful for in my life. But as I look back on it, I realize that that our rhythm that we were in um, tended to look at the Bible in a way that we actually worship the Bible instead of the God that the Bible is the story of. 
The Bible is the story of God and his creation. Every story has a beginning and a middle and an end. But something happened in 1551 that changed the way that we read the Bible um, from that point forward. A guy by the name of Stephanus went through the New Testament he started with, and he broke it down into chapters and verses, which allowed us to begin to access certain sections of Scripture and begin to fragment and to pull apart the story of Scripture. Now, there's some good things about that, okay? I mean, I'm thankful in many ways for the fact that if that I can say that, you know, Ephesians 5.21 says, submit yourself one to another as you do to the Lord, as you submit yourself to Christ. And it's, it's helpful to not just have to say that, you know, towards the end of the Bible, there's these places where Paul's writing these stories. And if I remember, he's writing, you know, to the different churches. And there's one where he's writing to Ephesus. And towards the end of that section in Ephesus, there's this thing in there that talks about um, submitting yourself to one another. So, you know, it, it makes it easy, easier, but it also allows us to not see the whole story and to begin to pick it apart and fragment, uh, in essence, our faith. Um, one of Janice's and my favorite movies of all times is a movie called um, Return to Me. Yes, it's a romantic, com- it's a romantic comedy. Um, but we love the character development. We love the music. We love the storyline. And uh, as an aside, it has one of the most profound cussing sections in all of, all of literature. Um, um, Jim Belushi is one of the supporting actors, and he's a policeman. And there's several scenes where he's got four kids. There's several scenes where he's sitting at the dinner table, having a cold one after work. And he's got one of his kids on his lap. And he's just lighting it up. I mean, he's cussing, you know, and, and talking about different things. And, and then there's a subsequent scene where one of his children, something will happen, is one of his children will light into this list of expletives. And the look on Jim Belushi's face is absolutely priceless. He's like, oh my gosh. He grabs the kid's face, you know, his mouth and says, where did you learn this? He turns to his wife and goes like, how did you let them learn these words? And it's really priceless. It's Um, proof, parents, that more is caught than taught. Yes, yes. (laughs) They're watching your lives. Yes. He never makes the connection, of course, between what's come out of his mouth and what's coming out of his kid's mouth. But actually, the movie is worth those scenes, actually, to watch. But, but that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here today. So, um, so a couple of, actually, several years ago, our youngest, Haley, we, she had heard us talk about um, this movie. And we just really asked her, we said, you've got to watch this movie. Um, it's a great movie. And so she, you know, reluctantly, but... You know, I sat down and, and watched it with us. And, and the first 10 minutes of, of this movie uh, shows this couple who's obviously in love. They're getting dressed for this black tie event. And, and it just has them interacting with each other. And they're dancing at this event. And you just get this impression. Okay, this is the main, the main couple in the movie. And wow, they're so in love. And this is going to be a great, a great movie. And... and uh, but about 10 minutes into it, on their way home, there's a terrible car accident. And the next scene is they have the wife on a gurney rushing her into the emergency room. And the husband has blood all over his, his tux. And, and uh, it's followed then by a scene um, where the man is, 
is, is crumpled at the front door of his house. His dog's trying to, you know, um, console him. And he's just sobbing because he had to leave his dead wife at the, at the hospital. Haley looks at us and goes, why did you make me watch this movie? We traumatized our daughter at that point. I looked at her and said, really, honey, it is such a good movie. It turns out so happy. You're going to love it. And she goes, how could it possibly be happy after that? (laughs) We happen to know the whole story. This scene is a very, very important part in the rest of the story. It, it sets up the story to be redemptive and about new life and new beginnings. And it's very, it's very a, a powerful movie. Um, but if you just saw that scene, you would have total misunderstanding of what the movie's about. This is what we moderns tend to do when it comes to reading the scripture. We tend to pull pieces out and little segments out and believe that this is the whole story. In one way, we oftentimes pull it out as almost a scientific textbook that you can turn to chapter so-and-so and verse so-and-so and prove your um, theological or, or spiritual point. It actually can cause us harm in our understanding of the nature of God. So what if we just took these few verses by themselves Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. First Peter three three. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. I I was asking Brent, does that have anything to do with changing your hair color? Um, you know, so it's always interesting to me that my kids have such dark hair. Uh, I just, I'm really not sure. And actually, you know, I am a natural blonde. It's a natural response to the chemical that I put on it. Um, so that God was lightening my hair, and I just decided I liked gold more than silver. So it works. First Corinthians, that's a sidelight too. First Corinthians 14:34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. (laughs) Okay, I'm going down. Um, Without reading the Bible as a story, as a whole, we can take individual sections of it and we can be misled. We can miss what God is trying to say to us. And so we oftentimes will read scripture from several different perspectives or several different categories. One of them is reading scripture as a law book. People who read scripture as a law book Oftentimes, as they see the laws, they see God as this angry judge who is always upset with them. The Old Testament alone has 613 laws in it. So when you look at it from only that perspective, you can easily walk around going, I don't measure up, I'm so bad, I haven't done this, and you walk around with shame. Or if you think you're doing well, you walk around and look at what other people aren't doing right. And so you become very self-righteous and you begin judging them and looking at ways that they are not measuring up. 
The law is important. All of scripture is important in our lives. God gave it all to us. But we have to take it in context. The psalmist talks about delighting in the law of the Lord. And I think that's because he viewed the law as a signpost. This is the way to walk. This is a way to live this life that God has for me that I can be blessed and that I can be a blessing to other people. But it's got to be within the context of the whole. Another way that we can easily read the scripture is as just a list of promises and blessings. You know, we can pull all of these out. You know, we make calendars of these and we make little daily devotionals of these. And uh, you remember the prayer of Jabez? Remember that when I was a big, um, talked about expanding the borders of, of your tents. Um, certainly God wants us to have a Mercedes, right? You should be churning your Toyota in for the Mercedes. And, and uh, we wouldn't be talking about um, this anti-building campaign. We'd be talking about, well, obviously God wants us to expand the borders of our church and we should build a builder building and bigger building. And because if you just look at those particular sections, you get just a part of the picture. You believe that if we just somehow understood the blessings and promises of God, then we would be happy all the time. Then we should have this eternal smile on our face because things are only, only good. Jeremiah 29, 11, which is probably one of the most often quoted verses, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. It's an awesome scripture. It's a wonderful blessing of God. But did you know that Jeremiah's main ministry, his main calling, was to challenge people of the um, idolatry that they were involved in, to, to convict them of their sin of idolatry, and to warn them of the consequences if they didn't turn from their idolatry? He was called the weeping prophet. And yet we seem to accept universally 2911, and yes, God wants to bless us. But surely all that challenge for idolatry, well, that was probably just back in Jeremiah's time, you know? Probably doesn't really relate now, right? It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to bless us. But it's part of the story. Those that, that read the Bible as just a list of promises and blessings have that smile on their face as long as A plus B always equals C. But the minute something happens where A plus B ends up at Q, then all of a sudden their faith begins to crumble. Things begin to break down because it doesn't make sense to them. And, and I meet with them, meet with folks that are struggling with this almost every day where, why is this happening? And I did this and this, and why are bad things happening in my life? And it actually puts them um, in, a, in a very harmful position. One of the most important and wonderful things about scripture is that it is realistic truth. Yes, there are wonderful promises that are in the word. There's wonderful promises that we have from God as we walk in this life with him. But we are also going to face some challenges. Things will not always go exactly the way that we want them to go. Now, the good news is we've got God there with us in walking through them. But we live in a world that is broken. And so sometimes we're going to hit some things that aren't all wonderful and aren't what they say or what we want them to be. That is a part of the life that we live. I love uh, 
uh, David in scripture, as you read the Psalms, you know, some of the most beautiful Psalms of praise, adoration for God are in the Psalms that David has written. But David has also written some ones that are like, I'm alone and there's nobody here but me. I'm the only one left to serve you. Or there's one in Psalms 22 that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David has happy times and he has times of struggle and times of stress. And I don't think it's because he had a mood disorder and he was swinging back and forth all the time. I think David was being honest and real and genuine with what was going on in his life. We will have good times and then we're going to have some days that are dark and that we may struggle and that we may not feel like God is with us. And yet he is. His promises are true. But we can't focus on those alone. We have to look at the entire context of Scripture. Those that look at Scripture as a whole, that look at the story of God, the story of the Bible, refuse to stick their head in the sand and say, I'm only going to pick out the really happy Scriptures and hang on to those. They immerse themselves into the entire story of God. Another way that we can read the scripture is as if it's an inkblot test. Um, if you've seen one of these, Herman Rorschach came up with this idea many years ago. And basically, he simply was a psychiatrist and he took a piece of paper, put a little ink in the middle of it, turned, um, pulled it together. And kind of the splotch that came up was an inkblot. And, and he would, as a therapist, he would sit down with uh, his clients and he would allow them to kind of communicate what's in their heart, what, what it is that they would see. And so you'd understand a little bit about their personality, a little bit about their focus on life, a little bit about their attitude. And, um, you know, so if a person would look at something like this and, and uh, see this as maybe a butterfly or, you know, it kind of hit me, it kind of looked it's a little bit like a flying squirrel, maybe, you know, or dancing um, bears, Dancing bears, you know, then we think, okay, well, they've got a pretty good framework on life. If somebody looks at this and, and sees a dagger sticking out of their neighbor's head, then, <laughs> then we need to visit a little bit longer. Okay. We have some concerns about, about what's going on there. And sometimes people read scripture like this is when I read a certain passage of scripture, what that scripture means is what's in me. It's what I think it should mean. It's based on my worldview and my focus that, well, because I think this, then that's what the scripture says. And so it's, a very, it's very much self-interpretive of what um, the story of scripture is about. The problem with that is instead of becoming more like Jesus, we tend to make Jesus more like us. Instead of getting swept up into the story of God, we sweep him into our story and make him a part or an add-in to our story. We actually tend to create our God in our image, the way that we think he should be, instead of recognizing that we are created in the image of God, and our life is to be submitted to him so that we can be transformed and so that we can be changed. Uh, Anne Lamott says, you can faithfully assume you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Another way that we can read scripture is, is, is a little bit like mapping God's mind. That all of these things in scripture um, are laid out there. And our responsibility is to kind of figure out how it all works. And put all of those pieces together. It presumes that I understand why God had the Bible written in the first place. 
um, which is, I think is a little bit presumptuous. It's a little bit like taking um, a jigsaw puzzle. Dr. Green used a similar analogy a couple weeks ago. You have a 500-piece um, puzzle, and, and that's all of the Bible. The parts that all make sense to me are about 125 pieces, and I've got it pretty well packaged over here in a way that it looks like a beautiful picture and it all kind of fits. Um, I kind of lose sight of the 375 other pieces. I don't really know what to do with those, so I kind of push those over to the side. This is what denominationalism has done over the years. You know, we started out with basically one church, and then it kind of split into two, then to three, and then now it's about 35,000 denominations that are out there. It's, it's we develop the picture as we're comfortable with, and we believe that ours is right, and our picture really communicates uh, the full package. It suggests that somehow the way it's laid out is wrong. You know, it's not quite all properly laid out, and we need to kind of figure that out and get it all organized so that we can figure out exactly what God is saying. Eugene Peterson says this, the most frequent way we have, getting, we have of getting rid of the puzzling or unpleasant difficulties in the Bible is to systematize it, organizing it according to some scheme or other that summarizes what the Bible teaches. If we know what the Bible teaches, we don't have to read it anymore. Don't have to enter the story and immerse ourselves in the odd and unflattering and uncongenial way in which the story develops, including so many people and circumstances that have nothing to do, we think, with us. God didn't give us the Bible so that we could master it or so that we could map it somehow. He gave us the Bible so that we can absorb it, so that we can allow it to master us. And it can be a part of what God is doing to change us and to bring us into that transformation. Another way that we're tempted is that we find, we find a character in Scripture that we really connect with. Um, I call, call this the maestro. Somebody that, that uh, we really relate to, and then that person... And what they bring and what they're seeing in the story is communicates to us what the whole scripture is. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a little bit tempted with this one. Um, I, I love the, the writings of Paul. Uh, this was his most recent Instagram picture I pulled off. Um, <laughs> Sitting there, one of writing one of his letters, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the way he writes. I don't know with my personality, but I could just hang out in in his letters. Um, I love to read them. I love to read them over and over again. Uh, and I would allow him, if I was not careful, I would allow him to communicate the whole story to me. As a matter of fact, I oftentimes connect with what he says about Jesus. Instead of immersing myself in the Gospels and hearing it directly from what Jesus says. And so we have to be careful not to, again, fragment it and just look at one particular scene. Another way that we can easily look at it is as the four spiritual laws. We take a look at Scripture and if I could just boil it down into these four things that I could write out on a napkin... And then I'll explain that to you, and you'll accept Christ, and so then I can check you off and move on and go to the next person. Yes, we want people to come to know the Lord. Of course, we want them to share in the life that we have. 
But the story is about so much more than just that. It is the life that we have in him and being conformed to his image and carrying out the work that he has for us to do on this earth. The whole story is a grand story of God and his creation and what he wants to do in and through us. There's a guy by the name of Robert Weber. Um, he's one of Wheaton College's most significant professors over the last 50 years. And uh, somebody came into his study one day and said, can you explain to me the gospel story? His response was, well, do you have about an hour? Now, we're not going to take an hour here and, and explain exactly what he said. But what we are going to do is we're going to read you something that's basically a synopsis of what he communicated to that person that was in his study that I think speaks to the, this idea of reading the Bible as story. Now, we've even taken what we've read of his and we've pared it down so it's something that we could be read here in just a few moments. Um, I actually have prepared a, a little handout um, reading the Bible as story, if you'd like to pick one of these up on your way out that has a little bit more of an expanded version of this. But just take a minute and listen to what it might be like to read the Bible as story. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created everything we see and some things we can't yet see. In the beginning, God turned what existed into a cosmic temple. In the beginning, God made two icons, Adam and Eve, In the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve one simple task, to govern this world on God's behalf. But Adam and Eve thought better and usurped God's prerogative. For one dark moment, the icons acted the part of God. So God banished them from Eden and cast them into the world as we now know it. God would find another way for his icons to co-govern the world. Sadly, all the descendants of Adam and Eve have proven their pattern. We are all usurpers. We all want to rule, not under God as God's undergovernors, but as gods and goddesses. Still, God gave Adam and Eve's descendants the opportunity to right the ship, but they cascaded into a nightmare of usurpations that all but ruined their opportunity to govern on God's behalf. But God is gracious. God chose Abraham. Then God chose Israel. God would give Israel the task of governing. What God did was to transfer the governing assignment given to Adam and Eve to Abraham and Israel. As the original icons were to govern this world on God's behalf, so Abraham and Israel were to bless the nations. They did this well at times, and at other times they acted like usurpers and chose to do things their own way. But they ultimately did not do well because they didn't let the good Torah of God govern them. This second assignment or arrangement wasn't working either. When Israel asked for a king like other nations, God at first balked, but eventually gave gave the usurpers what they wanted, a human king. In his own mysterious grace, though, God chose to use this kingly wish and made one of their kings, David, the sort of king that God wanted for them. This was the third form of governing on God's behalf. But David was a descendant of Adam and Eve, so he too became a usurper and messed up the kingly reign. 
Within a few centuries, Israel had seemingly forgotten the assignment God had given to Adam and Eve, the assignment that they were a priestly kingdom designed to bless the world. After years of deafening silence, God moved into the final plan and suddenly broke into history with someone who is both descendant and non-descendant, someone who would rule rightly and not as a usurper. God sent to Israel, Jesus, through Mary and Joseph, and God told Mary through an angel that her son, Jesus, would someday rule on God's behalf as Messiah. But even though Jesus did exactly what God had told him to do, neither Israel nor the Gentiles around Israel accepted him as Messiah. This scene consistently reveals that we are all usurpers and we don't want someone telling us what's best for us. We seem to be incurable usurpers. The descendants, both Roman and Jewish, decided they'd be better off putting him to death. What the usurpers and descendants didn't know was that Jesus was actually entering into their usurpations and the death they deserved for their sins. What they didn't know was that God could reverse their usurpations and reverse their death and start all over again. What they didn't know was this way of dying as a servant was to become the only true way of living and making peace in this world. What they didn't know was that the cross was the crown and the power comes only when it is surrendered. They didn't know this. No one did. Not even Jesus' closest followers. What the usurpers didn't know was that they had met their match in King Jesus, who was about to usher in an alternative kingdom. To start the world all over again, God raised Jesus back to life to end the dominion of death, to prove that the usurpers would not have the last word, and to show that the descendants could have a whole new creation lineage. He chose to let them be people of the kingdom called the church. And he summoned them to believe in Jesus, to turn from the usurpations and, and, so, and to so identify with Jesus that they would enter into his death and into his resurrection and through that find new life. Most importantly, though Jesus was the true king, the true Messiah, the true icon and the true Lord, God gave to Jesus's people the assignment he had given to Adam and Eve. They were icons like Adam and Eve, but with a major difference, they had the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit could transform them into the visible likeness of Jesus himself. As Christ-like icons, they are assigned to rule on God's behalf in this world. They do this by listening to this story, by living out this story as their story, by spreading the good news of this story. They now rule in an imperfect world, in an imperfect way, as imperfect icons. But someday, the perfect icon will come back. He will rescue his icons and set them up one more time in this world. This time, though, it will be right, because Jesus will be the temple, and the garden will become the eternal city, and it will be filled with peace, love, joy, and holiness. All usurpations will end, and everyone will serve Jesus in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Humans will govern on God's behalf in the way of Jesus forever. That's the Bible as story. How do we live that? 
How do we live out that grand story that God has called us to be a part of? I I think there's several practical things that we can do. One of them is we read the whole Bible. As Brent said, it's so easy to get caught in one particular part and read that over and over again. That doesn't mean you have to do a legalistic thing of reading through the Bible in three months or a year or whatever. But if you're still reading Paul's epistles 20 years later and you haven't moved on, read the rest of the Bible. Get absorbed in it. Find ways to get more time to have it in your life and have it a part of your life. Another thing that we do that I love that we do here as a body is we recite the ancient creeds. Those creeds are the foundation of what we believe. And every time we recite those as a community together, we are reminding ourselves of our core beliefs. This is what I believe about God. And the more we say it, the more it forms within us. And as we do that, it makes us less susceptible to go off on a tangent somewhere or to pick out a tiny part of scripture and be led astray in that particular way. It is the foundation of our beliefs. And so we say it over and over again to remind ourselves the truth of our faith. Another thing that we believe that we're supposed to do, and you'll notice that we pay attention to the church calendar, um, that we let it be a general guide for, for where we go as a community. You're going to see in a few weeks that we're going to uh, begin into Advent, and that's the season that will lead up to Christmas. And After Christmas, you'll see that we look at Epiphany, and uh, Epiphany will lead us into Lent, and Lent will lead us into Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and Holy Saturday and Easter and will be followed by the season of Pentecost and we'll go back into ordinary time next summer. And the reason that we follow this, we look at this, we pay attention to this is because church leaders, when they design this, that if you will follow this for an entire year, you will be immersed in the whole story. You will experience the whole story and not just pieces and and, and parts of it. That's why we encourage just regular rhythm of church attendance. It's not about coming and having one great message and one great experience that just revolutionizes it. It's really the consistency of that. It's the consistency of immersing us um, into the story. Another thing we do is we study the life of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Another thing is that we look at the church. We look at... From the very beginning of the church, in its inception, in Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
And so we study the writing of the early apostles. And so we go on and look from Acts all the way through Revelation. And then we look also at what happened in the church in the second century and what happened in the third century and the fifth century, 10th century and the 12th century. We look at everything that has happened in the church um, throughout church history, all the way up to yesterday morning at Rise and Shine, all the way up to this morning and what's happening in our life here. Because the story of the church and what's happened to all the saints that have gone before for us builds up and leads into our story as well. And we pray. We pray for God's guidance, that he will lead us in what we're doing. And we also pray for transformation, that we're not the same as we were, but the Holy Spirit works in and through us and changes us. We want his transformation in our lives. And we serve. We serve and we give to other people. We reach out to help those that are less fortunate than us. We are a servant within our own homes and with our families. We choose to serve and to give. And then what we find is that as we are serving and doing what God's called us to do, there will be people that will say, why do you do this? What is this all about that you're doing? And we're able to say, I have a Savior, and he's changed my life. And you are welcome into the story too. And we tell them the good news and we welcome them in to the body of Christ and we welcome them into the story that God has for us. Again, there's several things that we can do. One of the final things is that we recognize that the story of the kingdom of God and the story of, of just human life are on different wavelengths and that oftentimes as people pull apart and fragment the grand story, they get caught up into stories of the human culture. Uh, scripture, um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Some of the stories of the individual human culture are individualism, that I am the center of the universe. It's all about me. Whatever works for me, whatever feels good, that's what I do. Consumerism, I am what I own. Nationalism, only my nation is God's nation. Moral relativism, we can't really know what is universally good. Scientific naturalism, all that matters is matter. New age, we're all gods. Postmodern tribalism, all that matters is what my small group thinks. And on and on, there's little fragments of the human culture. And one of the best ways that, that we can um, overcome those influences um, in our world is to continue to look back at the story, the whole story of Scripture, the whole score, story of the church and all of the things um, that, that we do together. So as you read, whatever parts and pieces of the Scripture that you read, hopefully that will be expanded. But consider every part of that as part of the big story. And the final thing that we're going to do today uh, is Pastor Ed's going to come in just a moment and lead us into this. Um, is that we believe that this rhythm of communion, coming to the table, that we believe that this speaks to the whole story. That this is not just one little thing that happened 
um, on the Last Supper, you know, one little scene, that it speaks to God's heart for his people, that this was in God's heart from the very beginning. Um, it completed the, 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 the Passover story of Israel. It is, it is one of those things that takes us back to the whole story. And so let's keep our hearts and our minds on everything that he's doing, every part and piece of it, and the whole that's, a, that's absolutely a wonder. Father, we, first of all, just have to say, we have been incredibly presumptuous in our human limited minds to think that we can somehow figure you out, that we can go into a certain text or a certain verse or a certain character or a certain interpretation of a, a, a part of scripture or even understand what the church was doing or understand why you even had the Bible written in the first place, that we are presumptuous to think that we can somehow figure all that out. And so we humbly resubmit ourselves to you, to what you are doing with your creation. We want to be a part of that. We want to be transformed. We want to be, become a part of the big story. And so whatever each of us need to do to, to open our eyes and our ears in a greater way, we just, again, submit ourselves to you. We trust you for what you're doing now in this moment. In the name of Jesus.